today we're going to have a bit of a messy conversation, and that really is this uh, whole series, this Pick 6 series, that's six topics that you all chose, and uh, when it comes to human sexuality, and in particular homosexuality, it is a sensitive topic, it's a difficult topic, there are things that the Bible says about that topic, and so we're going to go through those things today, and we want to do it with, uh, I think, the right approach, but with the heart of really of just radical hospitality. Of course, we as a church want to welcome people of all kinds with all kinds of real life struggles so they so they can experience the overwhelming grace of Jesus. That's the heart of Jesus is how do we balance grace and truth? We don't want this just to be another can conversation. It's a complex issue. And so we're going to talk about uh, what the Bible talks about. We're also going to talk about some cultural realities, some historical realities too today. And then how we approach uh, this topic and kind of how God has led us through this process. And so we're very aware that this has real implication for real people. uh, And all of us have been impacted by this in some way. Uh, And just as kind of we think about this and and begin to set up on it, uh, this is a topic um, that, again, is a sensitive topic. And you got two guys here that are heterosexual guys talking on a topic that um, really affects uh, all kinds of people. And so uh, for me, this was really important to get a wide range of perspective and do a lot of preparation uh, on this. So just listening to all kinds of things and really praying about God lead us in this. And so uh, our hope is that you really would encounter God in a very intimate place today. Um, and that is this place of our sexuality. And so, uh, and like Stephen said, this is not just meant to be a canned conversation. We really want to dialogue and allow the, the spirit to be our guide as we uh, discuss this. And so uh, one of the questions I think it's important to just ask up front is, why is it so important to treat this issue uh, with sensitivity and thoughtfulness? And um, I think that's because for many, this is not a society issue. It's not a political issue, uh, but it really is a deeply personal issue. And same-sex attraction might be something that uh, somebody in this room deals with personally. Um, or it might be a reality uh, for a friend or a family member, or somebody close to you, somebody that you interact with uh, on a regular basis that is navigating uh, through this. And so I think we have to be, um, like we talked about uh, last week, that we have to not only have the right perspective, but we have to have the right posture as a church, to have the perspective uh, of the Father, but also the posture of Jesus and the way that we present these things. And so uh, I think that the way that we get into that right posture is um, by positioning ourselves Uh, in the place of those who might be experiencing this firsthand. And so I just want to kind of give you a few scenarios here that are very real scenarios and um, uh, just allow you to kind of imagine for just a second uh, what it would maybe be like to experience these things firsthand. And so um, first of all, I just say imagine if it was your son or daughter who was confessing to you that they had uh, feelings that they didn't know what to do with. And uh, how would you navigate that conversation? And and, and this would be a very personal thing. The second thing I would say is imagine that you're a 12-year-old boy uh, whose friends are all talking about girls that they're interested in, uh, but you don't have those same thoughts about girls, and you wonder why. Like, what? Why? Why am I not having these same thoughts and feelings about girls like everybody else? Why am I not interested in the same way? Uh, and so maybe even just to, to fit in, you try to pretend that you are having these kinds of feelings and and are interested in someone. So um, that could be a very real scenario too. Uh, imagine that uh, you're a Christian kid that's been wrestling with same-sex attraction or, or maybe not even really sure what that's all about, but maybe thinking, maybe, maybe I am, maybe I'm not, um, who's hearing things like you're an abomination um, from the people that they're surrounded with. 
Uh, and so I say all those scenarios to say it is a very personal thing. It's not just a political thing. It's not just a society thing. Uh, and it's also a serious thing. Th- th- this topic has real implications for real lives. And so that's why, uh, as a church, we don't just sidestep these topics because we care deeply about people. And that's really the heart of all of this. And the reason why we have these important conversations is because we love people. Um, and so it has been a topic that's been the center of cultural conversation. And so we can't just step around it and say the church isn't going to speak into real issues, especially when the Bible does speak to these real issues. And so uh, we have to lovingly guide people to- toward God. That's our responsibility. And so, um, so I think that's really just the importance of, like, the sensitivity and uh, the thoughtfulness in both our preparation, which we have, uh, but then as we dialogue in an ongoing way uh, with people. We want to give you some language to start with, some ways to capture this, uh, because these are real questions that people are asking. It was not long ago, maybe about a month ago, I just finished coaching and working out next door, walked in, did not look very pastoral in the moment, walked in, and one of the Kala Coffeehouse employees said, hey, Stephen, this lady has a question for you. And by the way, this is our pastor, she said about me. And I said, hey, nice to meet you. She immediately goes, what does your church believe on homosexuality? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, right away, it was like, okay. And uh, the good news is I'd already, you know, kind of thought through that. And a few years ago, we had encountered a pastor from San Francisco that I did church that very specifically focused on ministering to uh, homosexuals and, and those who deal with same-sex attraction. And he said, really, there are three types of churches. There are judging churches. Churches, you know, we all are familiar with that, right, and what that means. And and uh, and then there are affirming churches, which is on the other side, which basically says anything goes. Uh, we we um, don't hold to a historical viewpoint on this, they said. And so everybody um, can believe what you want on this topic of sexuality. And then in the middle, there are these inclusive churches. And uh, so that's how I described it to this lady who asked me the question. And I said, we're an inclusive church. What that means is that everybody here, we're all in the same boat. We're all together and it means that while we have a biblical worldview, we want to extend grace because we are all in need of grace. And so I was able to capture that in a way uh, with those terms that kind of helped that had helped me earlier to process through this. We are we want all people, um, all of us uh, to be together and, and uh, to be worshiping together. And then another concept that helped us kind of formulate uh, uh, our thinking on this is are the two terms historical and progressive. There is a historical viewpoint out there that's been uh, the predominant viewpoint in the church and in orthodoxy for really thousands of years. And, and so now here we are with that viewpoint. It's really the Judeo-Christian viewpoint on this topic. And then on the other side, there is a more progressive thought. The historical viewpoint that aligns really biblically basically says this, that marriage, according to God's design, is a sacred God-established lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. And therefore, sexual intimacy outside of God's design would be sin. That goes for premarital sex. It goes for adultery. It goes for homosexuality, etc. That's the historical viewpoint. But the progressive viewpoint over time, and particularly in the last 20 years, has changed that. And so Josh is going to talk into what has led to that progressive viewpoint. What has led to this cultural war that has been going on? So I, I think one of the things that was most helpful for me just in study this week is, um, and, and even prior, a few months ago I listened to this talk by a guy named John Tyson out of New York, 
and um, he teaches uh, in Hell's Kitchen, New York, a church called Church of the City. Hell's Kitchen itself is situated in a predominantly gay community, and so he's having a lot of interactions, heart-to-heart kind of conversations and biblical conversations on this topic. And so um, I found what he had to share just extremely helpful on this, and one of the things he talks about, uh, and I think that we can all feel, is just the immensity of the cultural battle that we're in. And uh, the, the ugly battle that it has become in a lot of ways. And so many of us are just kind of caught in the middle of this and don't know quite what to do with it. And so just for a few minutes, if you like history, you're probably going to enjoy this. If you're, if you're not, uh, you might be tempted to zone out here for just a little bit. I promise um, this helps us kind of understand how have we gotten to, the, uh, to this place in our understanding of sexuality. And so uh, let me just give you a little bit of background. And this is just meant to be historical. This is the way that he presents it. Um, and so let's talk about uh, this cultural war and how we've gotten to this place of, of contentiousness uh, that, that really exists around this topic. And so um, what he does is he unpacks the history of this culture war that we find ourselves in. I'm going to attempt to do that just briefly here. So there's really two sides, uh, as there is in any sort of cultural battle or cal- cultural struggle. Um, and, and here's what I'll just say up front. On both sides, there has been war and villainization rather than love and humanization. If we want to talk about progress, it takes the ability to to, to experience humanization and love, we're going to miss out on that when it becomes war and villainization. Um, so on one side, this has been predominantly viewed as a justice issue, that this is a fight for justice, this is a fight for rights. And this really began dating back to 1969. Uh, there was what was known as the Stonewall Inn riots. You can, you can look it up, you can study it. Uh, in Greenwich Village, New York, there was these protests that were happening um, against Vietnam. And there was this police action that was taken against a popular Greenwich Inn gay bar. And what, in that moment, this was a significant shift and a significant moment, and it became known as the homosexual shot heard around the world that really changed this American subculture. And at this time, the time was really ripe, and the gay community seized upon this language of rights and revolution, vowing that something must be done for the gay community. Um, And so one of the leading efforts in this was something known as the Gay Liberation Front, and they declared what was called, uh, what they referred to as a war with normalcy in 1973. And their goal was to shift popular opinion on this topic, and they really wanted to accomplish two things. Number one, they wanted recognition of the legitimacy of same-sex relationships, and number two, they wanted rights associated with those relationships. And so that this continued on with not a lot of traction for a period of time. And then um, what began to happen was the AIDS epidemic started to break out. And so all the effort that was going into this rights effort, uh, they were directing back to just care for one another. They were circling around one another and just supporting one another. And so there wasn't a lot of effort and energy put into uh, their war with normalcy. Um, But in 1988, after years of struggle and heartbreak during the AIDS crisis, they were hashing out what to do next. They'd come together and said, well, what do we do? If we we need to enlist help and secure support, uh, we need financial support uh, to to build awareness around uh, the AIDS research and epidemic. And they realized that they were going to have to come back to this war with normalcy if they were going to gain any of that funding. And and so uh, they came back to it. And in February of 1988... Uh, there was what they called and referred to as a war conference. And 175 leading gay activists uh, came together, and there was this guy named Marshall Kirk, who was a Harvard-trained social scientist, and another guy named Hunter uh, 
Masden, and they wrote this homosexual manifesto, uh, and what their goal was was to change the previous techniques that were being used um, to, to shift popular opinion and instead uh, use carefully calculated pop propaganda. And uh, they established this three-pronged agenda for gay rights movement in America, and it really was built around these things. And there's this whole book. It's like $90 on Amazon. I don't expect you to read it, but uh, it really, it's, yeah. So, uh, and it's a long work, but it captures this entire build of this movement and, and how it came together and really the historical view of that and really what the strategy was. And so uh, the three goals that they had, again, this is from this book. This is their material. Uh, number one, the goal would be to desensitize Americans to gay relationships. And so through saturation, via media, so on and so forth, it would just become commonplace. It would just be over and over again to the point where, um, as Marshall Kirk puts it, you can forget about trying to persuade the masses that homosexuality is a good thing, but it, you can get them to think that it's just another, but if you can't get them to think that it's just another thing with a shrug of their shoulders, then your battle for legal and social rights is virtually won. And so that's what he had to say. And then goal number two, so number one, desensitize Americans to gay relationships. Goal number two was that they would jam up all opposition. So any uh, gay dissent would be jammed up. And the way they would do this is to use uh, economic, advertising, political means to attack uh, gay opposition. So those that were attacking the gay community, those uh, that were not affirming the gay community, um, they, would, they, would, they would come after and attack. Um, uh, Tim Gill, actually uh, one of the, the mega donors, LGBTQ, who's known as the LGBTQ mega donor, he was interviewed in the Rolling Stone and talking about this. And he's like, I'm putting all my money behind this, and I'm happy to do that knowing that we're going to be effective in this. And one of the things that he said was uh, in this interview, um, we're going to, into the hardest states in the country, he told the magazine, and we're going to punish the wicked. The meaning that whoever doesn't firm this is wicked, and, um, and I'm going to align my half-million-dollar uh, fortune behind that to, to punish the wicked. And so um, this is kind of what was stirring up on one side. Uh, and then goal number three was um, convert the American opinion. And, and we've seen this continue to, to shift and take place uh, over um, the last 20 or so years, um, 30 or so years. Um, and many people that have studied this and concluded that this is the most massive cultural shift that has ever happened in human history. This sexual revolution that, that we're in the middle of right now uh, is, is, is this massive. And um, John Tyson, who writes about all this, and truth be told, I just stole a bunch of his stuff because it's so historically grounded and just great stuff. Um, but he talks about a lot of the friendships that he has within the gay community, the conversations he's having. And one of the things he's hearing now is maybe we're pushing this too far. Like maybe this is, this is going a little bit too far, this whole punish the wicked thing. And, and there's a lot of sense that uh, we're not coming to resolution. What we're doing is we're arming for another round of battle. And so we see this battle continuing to heat up. And Andrew Sullivan, who's a gay author, he wrote an article that the gay movement is undoing its best work. And, and what he meant by that is that this effort to, quote, punish the wicked is actually going to backfire, that they should instead enjoy the rights that they have fought so hard for rather than pursuing these war-only metaphors. And so that's one side of this, this cultural battle. The other side is, uh, so the one side sees it s sort of through the lens of a justice issue. The other side really saw it through uh, in, as an Im immorality issue. And um, so they saw it as um, an agenda item, an issue that needed to be fought for, that needed to be defended. And so um, the other side was viewed through that lens. It was a conservative and, uh, issue based on the, an agenda. So you have guys like Jerry Falwell that spoke up and said, uh, said that this is about morality. And 
they formed this uh, group called the Moral Majority, and many of you, if you study through the history of this, you know this. Uh, they fought for traditional family. There was opposition to uh, media outlets that promoted an anti-family agenda. There was opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment. There was opposition to state recognition of homosexual acts. But some of the rhetoric that was coming from the Moral uh, Majority was really abrasive. You have comments from the founder of the majority saying things like AIDS is not just God's punishment for homosexuals, it's God's punishment for the society that tolerates homosexuals. Uh, you, have, you hear quotes from him coming out like, if you're not a born-again Christian, you're a failure as a human being. So you understand that the division is only growing stronger and stronger. There was this ma major le legislation known as DOMA, which was a Defense of Marriage Act, which assured that marriage would only be between a man and a woman, signed by Bill Clinton, of all people, uh, the Defense of Marriage Act, um, which is ironic, a um, little bit. Um, what this has led to, though, is in, in this, this war on both sides has really led to real people who are actually dealing with these things and wrestling with these things um, getting caught in the crosshairs of a full-blown culture war. And the church has gotten ca caught in the crosshairs of a full-blown culture war. And John Tyson, the way he sums all this up is just to say culture wars create casualties. And we've seen a lot of casualties. And the church has been one of the casualties. In fact, in a, a recent book called Unchristian, um, which was put together by Barna, uh, they did a study and they found that 90% of people, the first thing that they think of when they think of the church is that it's anti-gay, and the second is that it's too political. Um, so when that is the viewpoint, when that is the perception of the church, the church is a casualty uh, because we're losing the ability to influence and impact the lives of the very people we're trying to share the gospel with. I sort of unwittingly jumped in the middle of uh, this cultural war a few years ago uh, when I was teaching a class at a local university, and there were all women in my class except for one guy. And we always go around, we say, well, tell us your name, tell us something about yourself, tell us your hobbies, and tell us what your spiritual background is, if any, because this is a class about the New Testament. And we're going around the room, and it's typical stuff, and then we get to this one man in the room, and he goes, uh, my name is so-and-so, I'm an atheist, I'm homosexual, I've had a partner for 18 years, I have two boys, what does your church teach on homosexuality? And I knew in that moment, I thought, oh, man, you know, I'm about to isolate my entire class in one, one fell swoop. And, and luckily, I gave him the language that I gave you earlier, which was um, we're a church that uh, there's three types of churches, judging, affirming, inclusive. And we're in inclusive, meaning uh, we want everybody to be a part of it. We're all part of the same, you know, community of faith trying to grow together in grace. And what happened over the next couple of months was really interesting because this atheist, um, began to read the Bible for the first time in his life, and he would meet with me, and he actually became the, the really the best student in the class, uh, and, 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 and following this class, took another class that I was teaching immediately after this that he wasn't even required to take, but he's really digging into the Bible, and, and he met with me one day after class, and he said, I'm reading the book of Matthew for the first time. And he said, in the book of Matthew, it says twice that those who leave their father and mother and brother on behalf of me, they'll receive a hundredfold in the life to come. Stephen, is God asking me to leave my family? Now, this is an individual that uh, he told me, I'm not flag waving, I'm not marching. I've just been 18 years in a committed relationship, and we have two adopted boys. So this is real life. 
how do you answer a man who asked me this question? Is God asking him just to blow up his family and say these boys need to be given back to someone else? Well, luckily, I had a pastor friend not long before that talk about a baby dedication where two women who had adopted child were in a lesbian relationship, but they had decided that God had convicted them and they needed to be celibate with one another, but they didn't want to destroy their family in the process as well. And so they came up to dedicate their child on that day and they wanted to do it as two celibate women who lived together as friends. And so with that background, I was able to say to my friend, I said, I don't know. You know, that's something that both you and he will have to talk about. You'll have to both be on the same page. But I believe that God is is asking you to be holy in this process, and celibacy is part of that. And then um, we began to talk more about these scriptures, and we began to talk about what does the Bible say. And and so I'm going to tell you today what, what I told him in this moment, because he said, I don't know if the Bible actually addresses this. I don't know. And so I laid out Mark chapter 10. It says at the beginning of the creation, God made male and female, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And this really identifies the Genesis model, the model that God established, one man, one woman for life. And then I read what the Bible does say about homosexuality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Flee from sexual immorality. All the sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have been received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Verses like Hebrews 13, 4, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. And so sex outside of marriage is often referred to in the Bible as fornication. So if you were a teenager or in college or in, or in high school, and you were having sex before you were married, the Bible refers to that as fornication. And, and, and the challenge with that is that it's, it's that sexual relationship without commitment. And, and what happens is the devastating effect, some of you have, have felt that effect of what it means to have that kind of a challenge and what it does to your soul. And, and, and then there's sex with someone other than your spouse, and that's called adultery in the Bible. And then the Bible clearly condemns that. Sex with an animal or a close family member is condemned in the Bible. Lust is in the Bible. Matthew 5, 28, Jesus himself mentions it as, as a sin against God. And homosexuality is condemned in the Bible. So with this individual, I read verses like Leviticus 18, 22, Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. And then 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, or thieves, or the greedy, or drunkards, or slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We read verses like 1 Timothy chapter 1. We know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who will kill their fathers and mothers, the murderers, the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. And then sometime read Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 20, which talks about God's wrath being revealed. And, and on things like in verse 24, 
where people begin to give over to their sinful desires, their hearts, to sexual impurity, to the degrading of their body with one another, exchanging the truth about God for a lie. In verse 26, God gave them over to their shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. And the Bible does address this. And so we walk through these verses, and here's what he told me. He said, I have never, I've never heard those before. I did not actually know that that was in the Bible. And what I began to see is this individual not only began to read the Bible for the first time, he began to come to church. For a while, brought his partner to church with him even, brought his two adopted boys with him to church, even though they drove a long distance to get here. And he asked me in one of our conversations, is God... Well, am I allowed to be a member of your church? I'm going to address that question later. And he also asked me, is God telling me I can never have sex again? That was a tough one, too. And I'll address that one in a minute, too. Just as we think through all these texts, too, it's easy to kind of make this about a singular issue. And uh, usually we make it about a singular issue that does not apply to us. And sometimes we're guilty of that as we read uh, the scripture. But I think we have to be aware of the fact and we have to push back against the tendency to want to justify our own actions and our own sexual tendencies and deviations as well. Uh, whether you're heterosexual or whether you would say that you identify as homosexual, um, all of us are born into brokenness, and we need to, I think, use these texts to just evaluate our own hearts. And one of the, the contentions that's often raised is, well, you only talk about this one issue. Well, I think we should be equally repentant of all sexual sin. Uh, whether that be sex outside of marriage, whether that be Jesus says that if you even look at a woman lustfully, then you have sinned. And so I think we constantly need to be repentant of, um, of these things and be willing to look in the mirror on these things. When, when he asked me that question about what, what is God telling me to never have sex again, I said, well, he said, that's not really fair. And I said, I said well, let me just uh, give you an illustration. I told him about my, my sister and uh, Sherry never was married, and I don't know if she was ever with someone or not. I, I have no idea, but I don't think she was. And and uh, and so I just told him, I said, listen, I, my my sister was never married, but she chose a life of holiness. And and I said, is it fair that she wasn't able to express that part of herself? Probably not. But she chose what was better, and she chose that that she would follow the Lord instead. And and really, that is what God is asking you to do too. It's not about what you can do or what you can't do or what's fair or what's not fair. It's about how can I become holy before the Lord. And just in that pursuit of holiness, I mean, I think you got to do a lot of, of work to justify and get around all this text. I mean, it's just, it's really tough to do. Um, you got to do a lot of textual gymnastics um, to try to not get the Bible to, to say what it's saying here. Uh, but there are a lot of objections that are raised um, from the progressive viewpoint uh, in light of the scriptures that Stephen just presented. And I just want to spend a couple minutes uh, unpacking some of those because you'll probably hear some of these objections from time to time. Um, the first thing that you might hear, and not always even relating to this issue, but uh, wider issues, is that the Old Testament doesn't have any moral bearing on us anymore. That's just one of the things that you'll often just, in a way to say, like, we can just go ahead and throw out the Old Testament because it doesn't hold any weight in our life anymore. 
Uh, but let me just give you just a couple of things to kind of address that. The first is this. The Genesis text that Stephen referred to in the Old Testament is reinstated, uh, restated by Jesus in his own framing up of, of marriage. So even using that and, and looking back upon that is him affirming that Genesis view of marriage. Uh, secondly, um, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That's, that's what he tells us. Um, and so there's really three different types uh, of laws uh, that exist in the Old Testament that Jesus came to fulfill. And um, there's ceremonial law, which ceremonial law would be things like the sacrificial system of the day and all of the things pertaining to that. And the reason that we don't live by that law anymore is because Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice, the fulfillment of those things. And so we don't have to take, uh, you know, lambs up to Jerusalem and things like that. We don't have to do that. Um, the second would be the civil law. Um, and this was really established uh, throughout the Old Testament as a way of Israel, how they would relate in their specific context as a theocracy or as a group of people who lived under the rule of God, that God was their uh, authority. So they lived under this. Um, and again, the fulfillment of this in Jesus was that now we're all citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so he fulfills that as well. And so we don't have to still live under those civil laws that were pertaining specifically to the nation of Israel. The third, is um, the moral law, and that is still applicable, and we're, we're still held to it. And uh, not only are, is it still applicable and we're still held to it, but we see time and time again New Testament writers like Paul and Jesus himself quoting back to Old Testament passages referring specifically to uh, some of these topics uh, on the Old Testament sexual ethic. And so uh, it's important for us to kind of have that understanding when that objection arises, that the Old Testament doesn't have moral bearing. The second objection usually regarding the New Testament um, and specifically some of the scriptures that Stephen mentioned uh, that Paul speaks into this, uh, a lot of times you'll hear something like, well, Paul wouldn't have known about enduring committed same-sex relationships. That kind of thing didn't exist back then. The kind of uh, committed relationships that we see in same-sex relationships today just wasn't happening back then. It was all, he was really referring to something different. He was only talking about, uh, he was only really condemning sexual practices like pederasty, which was male-boy uh, relationships, coerced sex, power imbalances, slave-master relations, so on and so forth. And so a lot of times the, the issue that's raised is that this wasn't men having sex with men, but it was men having sex with boys. This wasn't consensual sex that Paul was talking about, but he was talking about gang rape, power imbalances, systematic oppression. And so you might hear some version of that argument, but here's a couple of problems with that. Uh, the first is that the Greek word that Paul uses here, um, he could have used a whole lot of other Greek words uh, to speak to these kinds of se sexual deviations, but he doesn't. He chooses a Greek word that really captures this in general rather than specifically. And so that's number one. Number two, uh, there were examples throughout the historical sources of the time that displayed the existence of enduring same-sex relationships in all kinds of works of antiquity. I'm not going to quote a bunch of them today, uh, but um, Paul would have known about committed relationships among uh, same-sex partners in his day. This was not a new phenomenon. This is not something that we've just uh, evolved into in a modern era. Um, this was something that existed very much the same way in Paul's day. So he knew what he was speaking about and what he was writing about. Uh, there's a whole work on the wide range of sexual practices, including many examples uh, of the enduring same-sex relationships in the first century. So yes, these other things did exist. Uh, yes, there was coerced sex in that day. Yes, there was power imbalances uh, where people in positions of power took advantage of others. There was uh, pederasty. Um, all of these things did exist, but so did um, same-sex uh, en enduring relationships, um, and we can see that um, throughout works of antiquity.
one of the questions we'll get sometimes is, uh, was someone born gay? And uh, that's a difficult question. I grew up in a tradition where basically we were taught that if you were gay, it was because your father was absent or your father was overbearing. Or it was because your parents had divorced, you had some other nurturing issue. It wasn't nature at all. And uh, in kind of our processing here uh, a few years ago, as we were kind of walking through this journey and with the individual that I'm talking about, I came across a book called Torn. And it was uh, written by an individual, a man who had grown up in an evangelical home. And while he does come to different conclusions at the end of the book, 90% of the book I was tracing with him because I was just trying to put myself in his shoes. And what he expressed was he was a young man who grew up in an evangelical home. His father was very adoring and loving. His mother was loving and caring. Um, they loved the Lord. They went to church. And yet what he began to feel at, a, at, a, at an adolescent age was um, attraction to his own gender. And that was confusing and difficult for him because he felt guilty about it. And he heard the sermons about this topic. And he really wanted to be the other way. And he really wanted... To, um, to have a relationship and to try to figure this out. And so it was very difficult for him as he walked through it. And as he's writing these pages, you can just see his emotion as he's working through this. And, and he really described that he was, he really, as he was growing up, the, the deep, immense struggle that he had. And he talked about some of his friends who were put into conversion therapy to be converted from homosexual relationship or feelings to heterosexual feelings and the damage that that was doing to the friends that he was watching. And so he walked through all of this. And at the end of it, while he came up with different conclusions regarding what just Josh was talking about, about the Bible, the reality was his feelings and emotions through it were very, very real. And what, what really I began to learn through this reading was that, that, you know, it's not a gene, it's not, you know, oh, it's not this homosexual gene that you have, there's no scientific proof or things like that, but all of us have a sin nature, all of us are born in sin, all of us have something, and, and you know, you've probably been hounded by the same sin that you had as an adolescent your entire life, you probably had the same uh, tendencies that you had way back when all through your life, and you're going to continue. The Bible calls that, don't let the devil have a foothold. The devil has this foothold in our life in the same area, and I really believe that one of those areas is this area of same-sex attraction. And what I want to be very clear about is the temptation is not a sin. Orientation is not a sin. Activity and behavior is a sin. In fact, even if you read the Bible, and Paul condemns those who practice homosexual acts. He specifically calls out not the struggle, not the temptation. He specifically calls out the activity or the action. And that's true for all of us because all of us are going to deal with our own internal nature. And that's why this issue is so complex. It, it, it's not just them, it's us. It's all of us. It's everyone in this room dealing with issues of our own behavior and our own temptation and how will we make decisions toward holiness. So just in light of that thinking then, if we, really all, if we all do have a sin nature and we're all born into a sin nature, we're all born into brokenness essentially, uh, I think an important question to answer is how do we then respond as a group of broken people, as a group of messy people in light of this? How, how should gospel-centered people respond to those with same-sex attraction? And the simple answer is with genuine compassion, with genuine heartfelt 
compassion, love, and friendship, just like you would anybody else. Um, we're all messy, but as God tells uh, Paul, his grace is sufficient. As Paul's dealing with his own issue that we're not clear what it is, uh, he continues to ask for God uh, to take it away, and, and God just speaks back to him, my grace is sufficient, my grace is sufficient. So we're all born into this brokenness, but through Christ we're reborn into hope and wholeness. I mean, that, that's, that's the heart of the gospel, that all of us, though broken, can be made whole, not by our own effort, but by the power of Jesus. That's the gospel. And so I want to read again 1 Corinthians 6, 11. It says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. By the way, that's not an exhaustive list. Paul could continue to just lay out things, and, and at the end of it, we've all got something in that list. But here's what he says at the end of it. That is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that is the truth of the gospel. Matt Chandler said, the church should be a place for the sexually broken because if she is not, she is not home for anyone. So we approach those with same-sex attraction the same way we approach anyone else, the same way God approaches us with relentless love. And we see that love embodied in Jesus in John 1.14. It says that in the word, meaning Jesus, became flesh, he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. True love is full of grace and full of truth. Not either or, both and. So Jesus wasn't just grace or truth. He was the embodiment of love. He was both. And so that's how we approach people. And love really exists amidst this tension of grace and truth. That video that you saw earlier, uh, Caleb talks about his parents and just his own journey and his parents coming to accept and respond to the gospel. And um, what was interesting is their response as to how they were able to do that, the church community that he led, that they were able to do that in. And what they noted, what they really cited as being different for them was that in this place, in this church, they were treated like people and not just projects. Nobody wants to be a project, regardless of what you're dealing with, regardless of what your struggle is. We got to treat people like people. We got to walk with people like people with real struggles. And I love what Caleb gives. He gives these three points at the end of a talk that he gives on this. And I think they're great. I want to just offer them to you as a way of response. And the first is uh, we got to think deeper about the person, not differently about theology. You don't have to change your theology, but you need to start thinking deeper about people. You need to start getting down in the trenches with them and uh, understanding them. And, and by the way, having all kinds of friends with all kinds of differences. Uh, we, we, can, uh, we should be uh, continuing to build relationships with all kinds of people. Um, number two, he says, accept everyone, don't just, ag and don't agree with just anyone. Accept everyone, don't agree with just anyone. Uh, acceptance and agreement are not the same thing. Acceptance is, I love you just as you are, right where you're at, in the messiness of all of it. Uh, but that's not the same as agreement. You can love somebody um, and also disagree uh, on big things. But true love um, is this ability to accept people. Um, and number three, and I think this is really important, stop trying to fix people. It's not your job to go out of here and be like, cool, I'm armed with all kinds of great information on this topic. Like, let me go present that to them. Your, your job is to introduce people to Jesus. Right? That's, that's our job as a church, as individuals. Stop trying to fix people, but point them 
to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 5 says, who am I to judge those outside the church? It's my job to judge and correct and, um, and, and, and continue to uh, convict those uh, inside the church, right? That's our job for one another is to bring out the best in one another. Um, but who are we to judge those outside? The church? No, our job there is to point them to Jesus. There was a lady, uh, a great book, by the way, if you, if you want to pick up a great book, um, Summer Read, there's this book called Gospel Comes with a House Key, and it's written by uh, Rosaria Butterfield. And she talks about a pivotal moment in her own life that really changed everything for her. Uh, she describes herself as an out lesbian feminist who was a leader in the LGBTQ um, movement. Lots of articles that she had written on this topic. Um, and um, she written this one article uh, about... Uh, condemning uh, promise keepers, the men's movement, um, as misogynist. And uh, Pastor Ken Smith um, decided that this was an opportunity for him to reach out to someone. And so he reaches out to Rosaria Butterfield, and him and his wife, Roy, uh, asked, invite uh, her into their home. And she was excited about it because she's like, this is perfect. This is my opportunity to prove that Christians are all the same, that, uh, that they're going to condemn me. They're going to come down on me. And this is just a great research opportunity for me. And so that's the way she sees it. She's like, so I'll take the invitation. And so, um, but what she said was um, she was just going to try to prove what she'd already, already believed about Christians. But instead, she recalls it went much differently than that. Um, and, and I love what she wrote uh, about this initial interaction and the interactions after that. She said, The threshold to their life, speaking about Ken Smith and his wife, Flo, um, the threshold to their life was like none other. The threshold to their life brought me to the foot of the cross. Long before I ever walked through the doors of the church, the Smith home was the place I wrestle with the Bible, with the reality that Jesus is who he says he is. And I eventually came face to face with him on the glittering knife's edge of my choice, sexual sin. And so I think that as individuals, there's no replacement for radical hospitality. There's no replacement for love and the way that Jesus uh, lives it out. We're going to close by talking about uh, really what Josh was just talking about, which is like, uh, what do we, how do we respond as a church to this topic? And back to my friend's question, can someone who is gay be a member of our church or part of our Access community? And when he asked me that question, it was an Easter Sunday where he was there with his partner and two boys. And he said, hey, can I be a member of your church? <coughs> so I went to Josh in the hallway and I said, uh, well, I have a tough question here. And my answer to him was, well, anytime someone comes to Christ, they come in repentance. And they come and say, God, I want to live a life that you want me to live. But what I also understood was that we never give a test to anybody who comes in repentance. We never say, hey, uh, give me all 12 of your sins and um, make sure that you take care of all that information before you get to the place where you're baptized. So would I baptize this individual? Yes, absolutely. Um, would he be a member here? Yes. And uh, what, what I want to kind of help you with is three words that I think the church often has worked under, which are these ideas that if you believe like us and if you behave like us, then you can belong with us. In other words, if you believe the same stuff we do down the line, check, check, check. And if you behave like we do, you don't behave in some way that's other than what we would want to practice as a church community, then you can belong with us. And what that leads to is a very homogenous kind of group that all looks and acts exactly the same. And what we want to do is flip that on its head, and we want to tell people, you belong with us, 
and then through the power and grace of God, you will believe the things of Christ and behave in the action and the way of Christ. But you belong with us, even if you're on that journey, because aren't we all on that journey? Aren't we all in that same process? And so this friend, at this point, had never made a confession or accepted Christ. But he did move from atheism to belief in God. And only God knows what's going to happen with his story in the future. But what we want to tell everybody here is that this is a place where everybody's extended. That's why we don't, we don't say those phrases that are sometimes said where we hate the sin and love the sinner. That's a, that's a catchphrase uh, for churches. We just want to extend grace and truth to every single person, including our own selves, because we all need grace. And we all need the truth of Christ in our lives. Tim Keller once said, the church should be more like the waiting room to the doctor's office than the waiting room for a job interview. This is not a place to look perfect. It's not a place to have everything together. It's a place where broken people who have real struggles and real challenges come together. We belong together, and through the power of Christ, we'll believe the things of Christ. We'll have the head of Christ, and then we'll have the actions of Christ. We'll have the hands of Christ and the heart of Christ in our life. But it starts with saying, we love one another, and we love. We are loved because Christ loved us. And that's the heart of what we want to accomplish here. God, we just thank you so much for loving us. We thank you for your grace. We do believe in the scriptures, God. That is our worldview. That is, there, there, are, there, are, uh, there are sins that all of us face. There are challenges. There are difficulties. And we, we understand that not because of an opinion or because of a movement. But we understand it just based on what does the word say? What do, what do you want to say to us, God, about the best life to live? And so, God, uh, we, we want to move toward holiness. One of the quotes that Josh had given me was that it's not about converting from homosexuality to heterosexuality. It's about converting from homosexuality to holiness. And, God, that's, that's the goal. That's the goal of the gospel is that we would move from where we are to becoming more and more like you in our thoughts and our actions. That, God, we as a church, we lead with love, we extend grace, and yet we do it with that same underscore of truth. And so, God, help us to do that as we love people and, God, as we love one another. And, and Lord, we're just so thankful for the fact that you love us and forgive us right where we are. And so, God, help us to build bridges in a way that would help people hear the gospel. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Forgiver. Amen.